How are we doing? Can you hear me okay out there? Volume is good. How about on Zoom? Are you, can you give me a wave if you can hear? Yeah, okay, thank you. Good. Fantastic. I want to make sure we're all together, that we're all connected, that we all can participate together. So, fourth Sunday of Advent. We've lit all four candles, so you can see here if you're in the room. Uh, we have the hope candle, the peace candle, the joy candle, and today the love candle. And hopefully at home you will light those candles as well as you go through the liturgy for love, celebrating Advent. The scripture for today is one simple verse in 1 John. John's a book that was written near the end of John's life. John, to me, of any disciple, feels the most kind of like a grandfather to the whole story. You know, the other apostles seem like older brothers and maybe a father or two, but John is this real grandfather type. I resonate with, with him very well. And the book of First John is very simple, and he ends most of his teaching and the sermons that he preached in simplicity. And that's true of this verse as well. So I'll read it for you, First John chapter 4, verse 9. He says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. Simple, but it's very profound, and I want to put it together real quick for you. In this, or this is how, God's love, I would say, was made visible. This is how God's love was made visible on the earth among us. God did this. He sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. This verse seems to imply that there was a lack of understanding about the love of God. God had been in relationship with humanity since creation, which by now has been a several millennia. And it seems to me that if God would purposefully send his son for the simple purpose of communicating or making visible his love, the implication is it's not clear. And I think if you think about it for you, if you just had the Old Testament story and that was everything you knew about God, that's everything God had said to you so far, that might be something that you would miss because there's a lot about other things. There's especially a lot about what we might call righteousness or right living or right acting or right behavior. And so God wants to clarify his love. And remember who he's sending. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always been in existence. They have always been a community together. Fellowship unbroken, never any offense, never any brokenness, never any distance between the persons of the Trinity. They're one. They had always been one. If we carefully read our Bibles and we gathered everything that talks about creation you would find that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit were there together. It's what they did together, that they each had a role in the creation of humanity. The Father is the one who willed it. He's the one that apparently had the architectural vision for it, and he called it out. And somehow the Son was a part of that. It says we read earlier this year in Colossians that Jesus was there at creation, creating, that everything was created through him. And then back in Genesis, it says again that the Spirit was moving over the waters. And the Spirit was, in a sense, maybe the hands of God bringing about what God had desired. So that's who we're talking about when we say God sent. 
Jesus had never been sent before. He was always present with the Father and with the Spirit together in heaven, whatever that exactly means. They were always together. So for God to say, I will send one of us among the Godhead, I will send one of us out from us, that's a big choice. Imagine if you had an only child and there was a critical need for your family or your community for someone to go do something and you had had that child, whether son or daughter, with you your whole life and had an incredible relationship with them, but the need out there somewhere else was so great that you decided, I'm going to release this child into where the need is. That's what John is trying to communicate. This wasn't a small, hey, Jesus, I have a job for you to do. But it was a huge relational thing to send Jesus into the world. Because what that meant was he had to change his form. He was not in the form of a physical body. He was not limited as a human ever before this. And so to send Jesus was a really big deal. It meant that in his perfection as God, he would limit himself to occupy a human body. So these, this little word, God sent his son, has tremendous ramifications for what it took for that to happen. And I'm telling you all of this because that's really God's point. This is how much I love you. I am going to release this intimate relationship that I have. And the next thing that is so, so I just want to remind you too, I love this, that that intimate relationship never stopped. It says that when Jesus was baptized, when he came up out of the water, apparently the father was there to watch. Have you been able to be there to watch your children being baptized or your grandchildren? Yeah, it's a special moment. The father was there, obviously. And then he was just so, it was so important to him for others to know how proud he was and how much he loved his son that he audibly spoke. And those who were present heard him. And he said, This is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. So here we have this affirmation. And this is 30 years for us since God sent his son into the world. God sent Jesus into that manger, well, into the womb of Mary, and then into the manger, and then to live a boyhood life and to live the life of a youth and a young adult, and now at 30, he's ready to begin what God called him to do for the sake of many, many people. And God shows up to say, I just got to say something. I just have to say something to those of you who got to witness what just happened. This is my beloved son. I'm so pleased with him. So the relationship is still intact. It's still quite amazing. The next piece of the scripture says that he sent his son into the world. And I want you to think with me, what does it mean to be God, to be having existed always in complete relationships and complete character with no incompleteness and no brokenness. That was unknown to God in his own experience. And so he sent Jesus somewhere really specific. He sent him into the world. What does that mean? And really for Jesus, it wasn't just a human experience with its limitations and its highs and lows, but sending Jesus into the world meant a very specific experience, human experience that God knew about when he did it. 
when he said to Jesus, I need you to go, he knew what that life would look like. And I just want to remind you really quick, he sent his only child into all the worst that could happen to a human. All the worst that could happen. And God, being God, knew that's what was coming. Imagine, again, we talked about if you had to send your child into a specific place for a specific need. And imagine if you knew what your child would experience while they were there. It wasn't a mystery. It might be okay. It might be tough. I don't know. But you knew exactly what it would mean, as the Father did. Jesus, as a human, was hunted. He was literally hunted. Think of one of your children being hunted, that there would be people in power that would actually send troops out to find and kill your child. And this is within the first two years of Jesus being human, God's child was hunted. And it didn't stop there, right? I mean, throughout the last three years of his life, he was hunted. And many sought to kill him and vowed that they would kill him. He was a hunted child. That just sounds so wrong. He was completely misunderstood. He said many things and he did many things. And people kind of got on board and then they fell off board. They thought they knew what he was doing, but then they misunderstood. And in, think, this isn't that Jesus was, oh, poor Jesus, he was misunderstood. It's not that kind of misunderstanding. It's not that nobody got him as a human But in his mission, like the whole purpose he came, the things that God called him to do, he was not understood. So you spend your life for three years working to communicate, to bring clarity about what God's love looks like, and nobody seems to get it. He was misunderstood. He was rejected, obviously. Crowds gathered for the good parts, and then crowds left for the hard parts. He brought them together by the thousands to feed them and to share good news. But then when he said, you need to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me, then they left. He was rejected. And then when it comes to what we call the Passion Week, he was actually abandoned. He was abandoned by those 12 close friends who said, hey, let us sit on your left hand and your right hand. Hey, we will die for you. Hey, we will go anywhere with you. And when that time came during that Passion Week, he was truly alone as a human. No one, no one stood with him. He was by himself, completely abandoned. And then in that abandonment, he was falsely accused. Anyone here struggle with being falsely accused? Sherry and I grew up with this definite commitment to make it clear to everyone it's not our fault. It is not my fault. I'm not wrong. Thank you, David. Appreciate the testimony. We, both of us, wanted to be uh, pleasing to our parents. I don't know why, but that was super important to us. And actually, honestly, pleasing to most people. And we were very committed in every way that we could to never offend and never, you know, harm anyone. And uh, so we work hard to make sure you know it's not our fault, (laughs) even when sometimes it is. But with Jesus... It was actually never his fault because he did not fail. He did not sin. He did not hate or harm. He was falsely accused constantly. And then after a lifetime like that, he's executed. 
the most humiliating ex- execution a human has, has probably ever experienced, the execution of being naked, hung on a tree alongside a road where people walk by. He was executed in that way. So this is what it meant for God. He knew all of this when he said, son, I'm going to send you down there or out there or over there because I want to show the humans I've created how much I love them. And I know what it's going to cost. And My hope in this conversation, even though some of it's hard and dark, is for us to grasp just how much it meant for this simple phrase to happen, God sent his son into the world. God sent his one and only son into a world that would destroy him as a human. So all of this makes the why so important, so very critical. Why would God the Father send his son into the world? And the last phrase of this passage says, so that we might live through him. And this is, again, another very profound phrase. It's a lot like the phrase that Satan said to humans, to Adam and Eve, when they were tempted to eat that fruit. They said, we can't eat it because the Father says we will die. And Satan said, no, you won't. You won't die. And oddly enough, they ate and nobody dropped dead. Now, the words of the Father weren't wrong. The words of the Father were profound. The words of the Father were speaking to so much more than breathing and heart beating. The words of the Father were about soul and spirit and eternity and life. You will die. You will die. Not the moment you eat it physically, but you will start to die. And the second law of thermodynamics will kick in, and your body will start to break down, and relationships will start to break down and everything will come to an end. That's what the Father meant. So the enemy knew that, and he knew that Adam and Eve were naive. And so when they saw they didn't drop dead as soon as they ate, that really helped with doubting God. Like, wow, I'm still here. God said, you will die. I didn't die. I'm here. Maybe this serpent is right. This is like that when it says, sent his son so that we might live. So when God speaks of living, he's not speaking of heartbeats and he's not speaking of breathing, but he's speaking of living. Like everything he imagined that would be for humans to experience, that's what God calls life. It's all the things we can imagine. A relationship with my spouse or my roommates that's never-endingly pure and innocent and free from harm. And to be honest with you, relationships with everyone on the planet that are like that, that are what they should be. To go through a day and to come to the end of the day and go, man, this was a good day. And all you can think of is good stories to tell. And there's nothing bad to tell because it was good. There was nothing broken. I didn't hurt anybody. Nobody hurt me. That's the life that God intended, was a life of peace, shalom, wholeness, fullness, love, excitement, joy, laughter, No heartache, no pain. That's what God intended. So that we might live. So I have yet to use the word love. And I need to start using it because this sermon is about love. So I'll start using the word here. I used it a little bit, but not very much. 
Psychologists will say, specifically Larry Crabb, he's a very good uh, counselor and psychologist, that life, the meaning of life, is found in two ideas. The idea of security and significance. And this is psychology's attempt to boil down the answer to the question, what is the meaning of life? What does life mean? What, what's the substance of life? And Dr. Crabb boils it down to what he calls security and significance. I'm going to use a couple of different words. Those are good words, but they feel like a little bit clinical. And so I would say that synonyms for that are um, belonging and purpose. So security, I'm using the word belonging. Secure in relationship, that I belong to somebody. And that I belong to a household or a community or a group or a team. That's everybody in the room and everybody on home. Do you have that need to belong somewhere to some group of people, right? Yeah, that's a basic human need. And when we have it, we have a sense of worth. And we, have, we know where home is. And we know who home is. That's not the only thing we need. We also need purpose. Like within that home and within that community, it's got to mean something. We don't just sit at home all day long and say, oh, this is life. (laughs) But within us is this desire, this need, this created passion to do something with that, to make a contribution. Dr. Crabb calls this significance. I want to call it purpose, that I have a purpose. I do something significant for this community that I love. To have security and significance, to have um, belonging and purpose means two things, that I have a place and that I have a function. So what's your place, Chelsea? What's your place? Where do you belong? Who do you belong to? That guy over there. (laughs) Chelsea just pointed to Ian, who's sitting over here. So this is who Chelsea belongs to. She has a place. She's also a mother, so she has a place with her son as mom. She has a place. And then she also has a purpose. She has significance. What's the purpose of being a part of him. You get to be his wife. Yeah, you partner in life. All that you both desire as adults to be and do, you have a partner to do that with. That's your purpose. And you can figure out specifically what is our purpose? What are we going to do at this time? All of this sounds like full life, and it is the basics of life. But I want to say to you, that's not enough. And I can say that confidently because... I don't think any of us feel tremendously and entirely fulfilled. Can we say on a daily basis, I have, I've got it all and everything is good and I don't need everything. I have a place and I have a purpose and I'm good. I have zero complaints, honestly. My life is full. For some reason, not too many of us are saying that. What's still missing? I have a place I belong, and I have a purpose I live for, what is still missing? And I would suggest to you what might be missing or what is incomplete or what you don't yet have enough of is love. In 1 Corinthians, Paul was talking about a church that had belonging and significance. He was talking about a church that knew they were the body of Christ. They shared a city, they shared a love for Jesus, and that was complete. And it was a church that was highly gifted with gifts of the Holy Spirit, so much so that they were kind of going crazy with the gifts. They didn't know how to use them. 
So they were speaking in other languages and they were speaking prophecies and they were doing all kinds of these powerful gifts, but it was kind of out of control. And so Paul brought in this teaching in 1 Corinthians 12 where he says, hey, this is awesome that you belong to each other as a church. You've got belonging. And it's awesome that you have purpose because you have these powerful gifts to change each other's lives and share the power of God with one another. But it's, it's this. <laughs> it's that. You've got it all. You have belonging and you have purpose. But if you don't have what? Love. It literally, it literally means you don't have anything. And that's where emptiness comes from. And this is where we sit at home at night and there's emptiness or there's sadness. There isn't contentment. And we ask ourselves, that doesn't make sense. I live in America. (laughs) I have a wife that I've had for 40 years. I have a role as a pastor. I I belong and I have purpose and I feel empty tonight. And I'm sad. And sometimes I'm super sad. Why? What's going on? Paul said it, you don't have very much love. You don't have very much love. Love is life. And love is God. John said it, Grandpa John said it, God is love. There's something that has to flow through all of life to make it worthwhile. It's like a body with no blood. All the, all the symptoms are there. All the systems are there in the body, but there's no blood flowing through it. There's no life in it. The blood has to be there. That's what life is. And to have security and significance, to belong to a church and have all the spiritual gifts, but to not have love is to not have blood in your veins. All the parts are there. You have everything you need, but love has to flow through it. And love has to circulate. And love has to stay fresh. And love has to be oxygenated. And this is what Paul is talking about. Let me explain it in this way. So I want to take 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. You guys all know those verses, right? Love is patient, love is kind. It ends with always protects. Yes, thank you, Lincoln. Yes. I want to give some fresh definitions of the words that are used. And I want to swap out the word Jesus, the name Jesus, for the word love. And just see if this isn't a really good description of Jesus Christ in the Gospels. If you think about Jesus in the Gospels. Yeah, and you may want to turn to 1 Corinthians 13 if you like, just to recognize what I'm saying. But again, what I'm going to do for you right now is I'm going to read a series of phrases substituting the name of Jesus for the word love and substituting some fresh language for the words that we are also used to. So here we go. Jesus came to generously give time to people. Jesus came to generously give time to people. Jesus came to generously give care-filled attention to people. Jesus came to generously give care-filled attention to people. Jesus did not come to want what people want. 
Jesus did not come to promote himself as a person. Jesus did not come to take away dignity from anyone. Jesus did not come to do anything that was only for himself. Jesus did not come to condemn people. Jesus did not come to hold people accountable for what they did. Does that sound like it resonates with the story of Jesus? Did Jesus do all those things? Yeah, I know right now you'd love to talk about a couple of the phrases I used because you're like, what? I don't know if I agree with you there. I wish we had time for that. I wish we were in a study together to really look at that. Happy to talk with you at any time and have coffee about some of those phrases, but I'll stick by them. I really do believe they reflect the truth of what's said here in this passage. This is who Jesus is, and it's all those things that Jesus did that made his life on earth a true demonstration of the love of God. I think that it's been easy for us to make Jesus' life about the legal justification of humans before God. I think we've made much of what we call justification, and we've reduced the story of the life of Jesus down to the legal details. I am guilty of sin. I deserve to be judged. Jesus came and paid a price for me, so that doesn't happen. Tremendously true. You've got to have that. Without it, we will die. (laughs) But to just hear that as the gospel and then to move on with a normal American life is to not have life at all. Because the whole reason that we were justified is so that now we can love well. Justification isn't about you messed up, you don't deserve to live. Justification is about you're not very capable of loving well right now. In the state that you are in, in sin, you don't love well. You do all the things that love is not. Without God and left to myself, Rick is impatient. Rick is not kind. Rick wants what other people want. Rick promotes himself. Rick pulls down others. Rick is in relationships for what he needs. Rick gets upset easily. Rick keeps track of when people hurt him and acts appropriately in his own mind. See, that's who we are without love. That's who I am without Christ. And what God works to do is to change us, to teach us and enable us to love well, not to have a perfect report card. Justification serves loving relationships, not the other way around. And the enemy would have us believe, no, your loving relationships serve righteousness. And we weren't made for that. We weren't made for perfection. We were made for love. But imperfect people don't love very well. (laughs) And so the Father says, I need to make you better so you can love well. That's why I sent Jesus, to show my love and to turn you into amazing lovers. This is what it is to love well. Let me finish out the passage. Jesus does not delight in evil 
but rejoices with the truth. Think about when he confronted Pharisees. He did not delight in evil. And the evil was the Pharisees completely misrepresented God and all of his truth and who he was and what he wanted. They completely misrepresented. And Jesus did not delight in that, but he delighted with the truth. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That was the truth Jesus delighted in. Neither do I condemn you. God sent his son into the world to save the world. What does John 3.17 say? He did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. Jesus came to do no harm, but only to fulfill God's goodwill for his children. Jesus always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Because of what Jesus did, he opened the door so we could do it too. And now imagine if we could say, Caleb exists to generously give time to other people. Steve Lample generously gives care-filled attention to others. Jane does not want to take away what other people have. David does not live to promote himself. Jonathan is not here to condemn anyone. Tricia does not hold people accountable for what they've done wrong. Colossae Sherwood does not rejoice in evil, but rather is delighted in the truth. Because of Jesus, we are here to protect, to trust, to hope, and to persevere. This is why we exist. This is life. God sent his beloved son into the world knowing what it would be to show the world what love is and to open a way that we might have life. This is our God. Let's take those communion elements that you have either there on the table or there at home, and let's just begin responding to this truth and worshiping God and thanking him for what he's done through communion. Communion.